Hi everyone, thank you for joining me for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. This is a special parent-centered episode. Of course, we want to hear from our students and we want to hear from our parents so that we can really assess whether or not we're meeting the needs of our diverse student bodies. I was able to connect with Ivy online. I thought it would be really fascinating to talk with her about her perception of the National School Lunch Program. Of course, this is one person's perspective, so this episode is not meant to speak to what a large group of people with a similar background think about the program or think about food culture in general. But I think this episode is a good starting point for us to start thinking about some things that maybe aren't on our radar. So Ivy brought up a lot of different things during our interview and a lot of things I hadn't considered. I got a lot out of our conversation and I hope you will too. All right, let's jump right in. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Ivy, thank you so much for coming on. Hi. Hi, Dahlia. So my podcast is mostly focused on school nutrition and industry-specific skills that we need to build. But I thought it would be really useful for us to have parent perspective episodes because our customers aren't just our kids. It's also the parents of the children that we work with and the community at large. Oh, we have perspectives. (laughs) And also, I hear a lot at a lot of the conferences we go to still about millennials. And they're usually talking about us in the context of having to work with us. And sometimes I feel like people forget millennials are also the parents of the kids we're (laughs) serving right now. Like millennials aren't babies, they're parents now. So what can you tell me about your personal history with the school nutrition program? What impression of it did you have growing up? Uh, well, growing up, the school school lunch was my introduction to American cuisine. <laughs> my parents uh, came to America um, in 1980, and I was the first American born in my family. So we ate Vietnamese food at home, you know, as best we could. Uh, so, um, yeah, so everything I thought I knew about American food, I learned at lunchtime at school. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Did you have any concepts or any preconceived notions about what American food would be like before you had it? I mean, no, because I was a child, right? Like, to me, that is American food, right? Like, your school lunch or your, like, Salisbury steak, (laughs) right? And, uh, like, what did we eat in elementary school? Like, Salisbury steak and, uh, you know, box milk. And um, I, uh, what did I, what did I love? There were so many things I love. I love uh, the the sweet potatoes and the marshmallows. Oh, um, yeah. The way that, uh, you know, y'all boil vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's so To funny. me, that's American food. Yeah. And then uh, in middle school, um, in middle school, if you do the hot lunch line, um, there wasn't enough time to eat. 
So I would go, I would go get the fancy lunch line, which is like French fries and uh, chicken tenders, which is still a meal that I love, but it's not a meal I want my kids to love, you know? Uh, But I had to bring like $3 every day to school to buy that. And a lot of times kids would steal my lunch money and I would still have to go into the hot lunch line and just like not tell my parents kids stole my lunch money. Uh, Yeah. And so we, I qualified for a free lunch, but as a, you know, kids don't want to do that. Right. So I didn't ever uh, fill it out in high school until, um, until it was time to take the AP tests. And, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't know that if you did that, that you qualified for all their kinds of financial aid. So I was just going to my, one of my AP teachers office, just like crying one morning, you know, telling him like, I'm really sorry. Like I can't take all these AP tests. Like it would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and actually our our, P, our our school pta raised a lot of money to help students uh subsidize their ap test t- tests and so ours only cost 25 dollars uh per test the year that i was taking them because they had successfully raised a lot of money but i was taking all ap classes so it was going to be still hundreds of dollars like if i if i had paid even 25 dollars ahead and so he he was like no we, we have you know we, we have we have a solution for this like fill out this thing and and of course i qualified and i only paid five dollars test uh to go but then i qualified for free lunch which i was like great <laughs> now where was it obvious to other kids that that was your status was there something they did no that, okay Oh, oh, yeah. Like if you at, at lunchtime, if you went, yeah, the lines are two different lines. Oh no! Right, the school lunch line is one line, and then like your chicken fingers and uh, your your chicken chicken tenders and French fries is the other line, and the other line is much like there is no there is no way for you to uh, unless you literally fight your way and like run across the building for you to go into the regular school lunch line and get your food, like sit down, eat your food, clean your plate, and then actually get to your next class. Like it's just not achievable. Oh, at so, my so was there, so you're saying there was a free line that was completely different? Yeah, the free line, yeah, the free line, it was just like a mile long. Oh my I'm, goodness. I'm from a big city. I'm from Dallas, Texas. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. It's a huge city. Schools are huge. And so it just takes mm. right, it's just so many, so many students in that line. You can't See, get through. I never even heard of that before. So when I was in school for a while, um, my family and I, we qualified for reduced and briefly we, most of the time we were on reduced, which wasn't much of a reduction at all, but it helped. And for a little while, we were on free. And I remember they gave us a different colored ticket for lunch, but we all went through the same line. Like, I, we never were served different food or had a different wait time. I didn't, that didn't even occur to me that maybe some districts did that. Now, no one does that. There are rules in place. You cannot make it overt that one kid's status is different from another. So, like, I know when I was finishing school, they moved to student ID numbers. And so then the only person who would know your status would be the person at the register and there wasn't a space for anyone to stand or see behind her. So then it was, you couldn't tell who was who, but. Well, I think, I think at my school, it, like even like I would still be in that line, even when, uh, even before I'd filled out that paperwork. But I think the assumption, I think it's just assumed if you're in that line, you were you qualify for, for reduced lunch or else like, why would you put yourself in that line? It's just such a terrible line. Yeah. Right. So 
kids. So, you know, you think fancy kids are packing their kids lunch. Um, they bring a lunch from home or they just, you know, or they go or they get paid more money and they, they get the cooler meal with the French fries and the, you know, and the chicken tenders. Well, you mentioned there's a difference between a meal that you like and a meal that you would hope your kids would like. So what's the I don't difference? want my kids to be poor. <laughs> oh, I- well, of course we don't. So, but with the tenders, do you feel like that's too processed of a meal for? Yeah, kids? like I, I love grape soda and Jack in the Box and Church's oh, chicken. Gotcha. You know, like I love that kind of food. <laughs> this is the kind of food I grew up eating, and I love it. And I, I'm, I'm a foodie. I'm a snob. Like I also, I also love. You know, uh, every decade to treat myself to a mission star meal. I oh, cook. Nice. Uh, I made somebody came over to help me with resume writing yesterday and I made her I made her cured salmon um, shrimp with yuzu ozu sauce like in the middle of the like butterfly with yuzu ozu sauce just like a Japanese like pepper uh, pepper relish like inside and um, and steak nigiri like that was like the meal that you know with like a beautiful like splay of you know avocado and a bowl of like literal California short grain rice you know like I'm a snob I love fine food but I also love low food you know like I love (laughs) I love but I just love food and I just enjoy you know all ends of the spectrum of it from all different kinds of cultures and I want my children to enjoy food but I, I'm also kind of counting on because gentrification is such a big issue in Austin. And on one hand, like I don't, there's a lot of things that uh, a lot of really terrible things that gentrification brings uh, to the city and my neighborhood. But on the other hand, I know by the time my kids are driving and can make their own drive-through choices, um, the church's chicken that is so convenient for me right now will probably be gone. So it'll be there as long as I need to enjoy it and then gone for my kids. And I think that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that perspective. I mean, you, that's the whole thing. Parents want better for them. Well, better for their their children than themselves. I kept wanting to say that. Of course. I so. want them to be, I, I almost don't want them to know that I grew up poor because then I feel like, I'm introducing the idea that it's possible that people don't go to college. Like I may, I may be able to, if I, if I advocate for their school incorrectly, I may be able to put them in a world where like they don't, they, they don't even consider that that's a possibility. Whereas I was, I was like one of the only people (laughs) that was in my, you know, not, not, that was not assumed. That was not assumed. Right. 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 I think it's helpful to know that you can do it anyway if, once you see the value. And the job market has totally changed. So whereas it might have possibly worked out okay 20 years ago if you didn't go, these days it's getting harder and harder to set yourself apart from other job candidates if you don't, if you don't get a chance to go. So... Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that pressure, Dahlia. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll be fine. That's my assumption is that everybody will be fine. That's also okay. how I see things because I don't have children, so I get to just assume like you know it's all going to work out. So, can you speak more to what your food culture was like at home? Yeah. So uh, I'm Vietnamese American. Uh, so at home. Um, <laughs> 
I, I actually have to tell you a really funny story about this. I did not really get a sense of what my food culture was. It just what, you know, to me, what, how you grow up is just normal until you leave home right. and you're exposed to other ways that people lived. So when I went to college at the University of Georgia in your backyard, uh, it was the first time, obviously, that I had really left home. And I, uh, we didn't have kitchens in our dorms. Or like one building would have like one tiny kitchen. So I was on the school meal plan where you just go to the mess hall and get what, what you want. You paid. It's basically like a buffet, right? You pay at the beginning of the semester to basically eat all you want and anytime you want as long as they're open. And I could not understand how to eat the food. So I gained so much weight. I would be like, I don't know. I guess this rotisserie chicken goes with these pancakes i don't know how to pair these everyone else seems to know how to load their plate in a correct way and i'm just kind of like this looks good this looks good this looks good i don't really know what a what a meal entails right so i decided i gained so much weight and i didn't even like the food the food was to me it just didn't ever hit the spot for me so i think a lot of times i would go back uh, to get a second plate just to try to figure out how to feel satisfied. And I overate, but I still didn't feel good. I didn't feel like I had a uh, a meal that made me feel, I don't know, like food's a really big part of my culture. So it's not just feeling full, it's feeling content, I guess, in a way, yeah. feeling like it's just something, something uh, just like your whole, all of you has this hunger and like all of that hunger is satisfied somehow. And so at home, what we eat is like, there's, there's always rice. There's always like a main protein, like, uh, like for example, caramelized catfish or something like that. Um, there's always a soup of some kind, um, like maybe watercress soup with shrimp dumplings, yeah, uh, shrimp uh, like a shrimp broth, um, and usually, and 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 then some vegetable. Sometimes it's like it'd be like a sautéed sautéed vegetable, or sometimes if it was like hot outside, it would just be like sliced crispy cucumbers or watermelons or something like that. Uh, and then and then you just kind of put everything together in a bowl, one one small bowl at a time, and then you would eat that with chopsticks. And uh, and then there would be like a sauce, like fish sauce or soy sauce or something like that for your rice. Right. That's all one so, meal. That's like one meal is like you have like one of each thing and then every and then the big dishes are in the middle and then you you take the bites that you want like per per bowl, right? You mix your bowl. And then at the end to try to scoop up all the rice, you like fill it with soup, you know, scoop all that rice. And so then at the end you've got like a clean, a little clean bowl. Uh, so that's what I was accustomed to. But obviously I didn't know how to cook any of that because growing up, because I because my parents thought I really could get to college, I did not have to do all the chores that most kids have to do. They really really wanted me to study. So I got away with like, sometimes would, my mom would tell me to wash dishes. As soon as she left, my dad would come over while the water was on and be like, just go do your homework, go do your homework, <laughs> go study. And he would just like quietly take over washing the dishes because he was worried I wasn't going to finish my work. You know, I didn't really learn how to cook when I was growing up. I just developed a palate for what was good because uh, my mom is it, it's not just because she's my mom. She's in a very large family. She's legitimately one of the best cooks in the family. And then my grandma lived with us and raised me until I was like 12 because my parents like worked so much. And my grandma is a gifted, gifted cook. Uh, she would make two meals. She would make one meal for herself because she's a vegetarian. She's a very devout Buddhist. And then another meal for us because, uh, because she, you know, even if you're a really devout Buddhist, like, you don't want, they're, they're scared to make their little, little kids uh, vegetarian because they just, 
you know, they're worried they're not going to grow well enough. That's like more of a decision you would make as an adult, whether or not you want to be vegetarian. So I, I had the benefit of an incredible palate, but uh, I, I did not know how to do anything except for, you know, cleaning rice, the kind of manual things that you make your little kids do. Wait a minute. Right? How do you clean rice? Well, so you, uh, like you rinse it, you rinse rice, or if you're making like other kinds of rice dishes, um, like that's like not just literally just like making your rice, like then you have to like soak it and all the stuff and then spread it out and pick out the ugly grains. Like if you're going to make like some dessert or something with it, you know, that's uh, so funny. Cause I feel like I've eaten a lot of rice. I've made a lot of rice. I didn't know that I was supposed to rinse it. <laughs> You, oh, I don't know what kind of rice do you eat. <laughs> well, is that a, a good rule for all kinds of rice? Do you know, or is that for certain types? I don't know. I don't know that I. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. I. I only know the rice that I worked with. That's something for me to Google. Right. So, like, I don't know. I guess I. I yeah, I don't know what I don't know. So I don't know what other rices that might are not in my vocabulary. I guess. So, what types of rice were popular when you were a kid at your house? Uh, well, we, you know, I think the default is just jasmine rice. Yeah, just so it, like all I knew how to do was kind of like annual sous chef stuff right, that, right. Uh, you know, little kids that your parents are, are going to make you do, right, when they have to cook for a lot of people or something like that. But I didn't really know how to cook. I had hallmates that saw that I was going to go off the school meal plan altogether and try to start cooking for myself. I literally set off the fire alarm in my dorm. <laughs> I've done that. I've had to evacuate the entire dorm. Um, <laughs> I just didn't know what I was doing and, and it didn't go, it didn't really go well, but I was, I was just determined. So my favorite meal I figured out, I got, I had a rice cooker that I brought to college uh, um, or I brought, I brought it with me the next semester and it has like a steaming thing on it. So a lot of times I could just like literally make rice and like steam fish or something, fish and vegetables or whatever and the little steamer on top of my rice cooker. And that was super easy or a meal. And I still sometimes make is like a jar of Alfredo sauce pasta and like a can of tuna right uh-huh. like that's an awesome meal awesome dorm meal what do you do with the tuna like how do you see just the tuna? you you don't you're in a dorm it's like one you have one pot and you 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 cook the pasta you pour out almost all of it then you put the pour the sauce in and um and then you pour the tuna in and then you stir it all up while the pot is still hot and then you have a warm bowl of pasta and tuna alfredo tuna pasta that sounds good if you say Alfredo tuna pasta. It sounds like a real dish. And not just like something uh, college kids have to eat. Well, I grew up on canned tuna because I was poor. So I love tuna. I love, I love like that fancy tuna, um, like that fancy, like fatty, like endangered tuna, you know, <laughs> at, at the sushi restaurants. But yeah. you know, Endangered tuna. Does that make it taste better? Yeah, it's like rare. Like only <laughs> only people with monocles get to eat endangered animals. Well, it's funny. Like my family, I think we were really poor, but maybe maybe my idea of poor is skewed because sometimes when I talk about some of the things we had as kids, people are like, mm, "You're not sounding poor to me." Not sounding poor. I was talking to somebody a little while ago, actually last weekend who said he'd never known that rain boots or rain coats existed until adulthood, that he'd never even owned or used an umbrella. He knew those existed, though. But yeah, I knew about umbrellas. So poor that that wasn't something you would waste your money on. You would just get wet and try and get inside. And I'm like, huh, I don't know, don't have an umbrella poor. 
Um, so it, I perceived myself as poor. I guess I'll just say I self-identified as poor. And we didn't get a lot of tuna because my mom said it was too expensive and that we were better off with rice and beans. That could also be her bias that she wanted rice and beans. I don't know. <laughs> that was just uh, what she was telling us or what the real deal was. Actually, when I went home for Christmas and I was trying to explain to my aunt the what I was, uh, I was like learning how to cook and everything. I didn't have a car. Uh, I didn't have a car, so every once in a while, people would give me rides in the store. Who when they were going when they were going grocery shopping, and I thought that you know fish and fish and rice was going to be the cheapest meal because I knew that we were poor growing up and we ate fish and rice a lot. And I also thought that that was true because my dad told me a story of that era in Vietnam where it was a civil war and you just didn't know who to trust that at that time you couldn't even trust teachers, which is a, I mean, almost a holy relationship, the student and teacher, you know, people really revere their teachers, um, their, their teachers back in Vietnam, at least when my parents are growing up. I don't know what it's like now. But he said back then, you couldn't even trust your own teachers. So if your teacher asked you, like, oh, what did you have for dinner? And you said, you know, rice and pork or something like that, then somebody might come to your house in the middle of the night and take your parents away because how did you get the money to buy pork? Oh, wow. But if you said rice and fish, then you were safe because anybody can just go to the water and catch a fish. So I, so here I am, I'm like, oh, well, like rice and fish is a thing. But then I go to the store in America, fish is the most expensive. Chicken is the cheapest meat that you can get. And I'm telling my aunt this and I'm like, that's so funny. I, I, I really thought that fish was going to be the cheapest meat because that's what you guys always fed us. But it turns out it's chicken. And they were just like crying, laughing, like just like couldn't breathe, like laughing because just the way that Vietnamese mom's mother they're not willing to sacrifice nutrition. Mm. They will sacrifice like everything else. And I understand why now they have a suspicion that if your teachers think that you're poor, they'll treat you differently. And they're 100% correct. 100% correct. Okay. And so the things so they invest in things to try to hide your socioeconomic status, right? Like an Asian mom will dig and dig and dig and coupon and coupon and coupon and I wasn't allowed to wear jeans to school so I always had to dress they wish they had school school uniforms so I always had to wear like slacks or a skirt you know a proper shirt like not like t-shirts and jeans like they never let me dress like that to go to school which was fine I look really short and stubby in jeans anyway I didn't really care right Uh, but I always had to look nice to go to school and I think there's this sense that you're like if when you imagine a poor person you do imagine, uh, you know, hair that's not as bright and skin that is duller. Yeah. Look a certain, you know, that look differently and hands that are dirty. Like you, you, we have these really, really subtle class markers that if, you know, that we don't realize that we notice, but we do notice, right? The only times maybe you don't notice is when you're transported to a different country. And at first you can't, you don't know what the culturally specific rules are. are. Yeah. But in your cult country, you do know and you think about it all the time, just subconsciously, right? So, um, so I think that's part of the reason why, like, food is just not something that they're willing to compromise on. Like, they can they can make a very they can make the cheapest ingredients that they're willing to buy and then turn them into something really beautiful. But they're not they're not gonna 
but if they can if they can afford it that week like obviously there are weeks where like all we had was like bread and butter and we put sugar on it and i thought that that was a fancy thing so the first time when i went to france as an adult on like a school trip um on like a study abroad uh i walked to this cafe and they, they like put down some baguettes and i start to butter it and literally tear sugar packets from the table and like pour it on the bread like look at me i'm so sophisticated i know what french people do. girl that is not what french people do <laughs> That is an American sugar sandwich. We just called it the butter bunny because of our cultural differences. But like literally, that's what black people call a sugar sandwich. I've <laughs> never our- heard of that. <laughs> you did not know before. You don't know what a sugar sandwich is. But like you said, when you're a kid, it's just food. Like you don't even know that you're not eating what other people are eating. I didn't know how to use a knife and fork till I was at some kid's pool party. And that's, everybody looked at me and they were like, you don't know how to use a knife and fork. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> because at school, I just ate finger foods. Oh. And that's where I learned how to eat American food was at school. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about how that could be a disservice to our kids. Yeah. So how did you learn how to cook? Just trial and error since you didn't learn as a kid? So eventually, eventually I graduated, right? And uh, I, I, li- I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And then when I graduated, I, I was gifted this book that's, it's not even in print anymore, but it's called The Three Ingredient Cookbook. And it, it's got all these pictures and really simple recipes. And through the recipes, I was able to learn the principles of cooking. Because most cookbooks, they assume that you know food words in English. So I did not know food words in English. I did not ever speak about food in English, ever, right? right? So I don't know what it means to roast or, like, I guess that's one of the big words that you're just like, they're like, now just roast this. I'm like, what does that mean? What does that, what do you want me to do with this? I have all this raw meat now, salmonella, is germinating in my kitchen. And there's one word, there's one step, it seems really crucial. And there's zero explanation on, on, what, it, on what it means. Um, and then it'll list like all these ingredients that I don't understand or know or whatever. But this was like, it was a picture of all the ingredients and it, literally every recipe only had three ingredients. And from there, from there, I, I turned into a total food snob. Every year here in Austin during South by, we hold this backyard concert. I make an absurd spread of gourmet food with only ingredients bought from small businesses in my neighborhood to just show what it is that you can do. You say there's a local businesses that are that have been here and we could can keep them here these are the beautiful things that that you can make and so i throw parties all the time and you know so now like i i, I love cooking i could talk about cooking all day long <laughs> you oh, know that's but awesome. somebody had to explain to me the vocabulary right there was just this language barrier and that's how i broke the language barrier and then once i broke the language barrier um, even though I'm a native English speaker, we don't talk about food, right? And right. when you're growing up, right? So I, I, so I had to break this, this kind of this language uh, barrier when it comes to food. And then once I broke that, it turns out I had everything that I needed. I have the palate from all those menial food chores that my mom made me do. Like I had the hands, you know, like I knew how to make great, beautiful, heartwarming food. Sometimes people come to my table 
And I think to myself, like, what does this person need to be nourished? And some people need to remember where they came from. And I think about their family and I think about their history and I try to make them something that will immediately make them understand their roots and feel better and feel grounded again. And some people are just kind of trapped in the past or the future and they need to be forced into the present. So then I would make them something that's like extremely like surprising and arresting and, and, and bright and just forces them to be present for a second and remember what, you know, remember what's what and come back to us. I express so much of my love for not just my children, but for anybody through, through my food and, and, and cooking, because like, I know somebody's struggling. Um, I just can't, it's really hard for me to just be like, Hey, Dahlia, I know you're struggling. And I just want you to know that I love you and I believe in you and I'm here for you ever you need you just let me know like I can't I just can't it's really hard for me if somebody really needs that I'll put my big girl pants on and I'll do it but if I can just give you a big giant Tupperware of my love and like silence and give you the gift of like this nourishing food and just sit there and be like we're just gonna be silent and that's this is my gift to you is silence yeah you don't have to talk or if you want to talk about it we'll talk about it but I'm perfectly comfortable sitting here in silence if you're gonna cry and you don't because we're southern you know and you cry we're gonna pretend like you're not crying just gonna turn around and start plating this food (laughs) you know what I mean yeah I do think that's a very southern thing do you ever have trouble trying to tell the difference between which parts of your cultural roots are informing your current behavior since you're a blend of the South and of your parents' culture. I think the only reason I would need to do that is for the, for spectators. Yeah. Like I, I carry a a fan with me all the time, like a hand fan, you know, constantly. I'm from Texas. Yeah. I live, I sent my reckless youth in Georgia. I'm back in Texas. Climate change is real. Okay. (laughs) I carry a fan constantly. As soon as I whip my fan out, Everybody is just like, oh, that's an Asian stereotype. And I'm sitting here. Are you, like, do you have to be hot because you're Asian? You can't use a fan? You just have to sit there and be hot? Well, I think traditionally, the hand fans and parasols are very Southern things. That's true. But when I carry around a parasol and a fan, people are like, oh, you're such an Asian stereotype. And I'm like, pretty sure I'm both. Pretty sure pretty sure Southerners just stopped doing that like 20 years ago. Oh, and I'm all over it now. Somebody gave everyone in the office a fan because like you said, climate change is real. It's happening. And we we can't put it down. But I do sometimes hesitate when I want to do something genuinely just because I want to do it that happens to also reinforce some sort of um, stereotype or caricature of Black people. But I'm like, am I supposed to not do that because of this like seriously are you just gonna sit there and be hot when you have a fan in your purse like that doesn't make any sense (laughs) the other day I went to the park and I was the only minority at at the park Austin is is the most segregated city in Texas and it's the most economically segregated city in America um it's a wonderful city in uh you know some ways and and it's very problematic in other ways um, and we were at the park and I, it was so bright and so sunny. And I brought, I brought my umbrella, right. To block, to shade myself from the sun. And, and I was worried that our friends wouldn't find us until I realized I forgot that the friends were meeting us, 
um, they are uh, one uh, one was black and the other one was uh, uh, was Filipino. And so I was like, it's fine if I turn my back because um, the Filipino mom is going to know immediately that the woman with the umbrella is me because <laughs> I'm the only minority and she'll immediately know that's an Asian mom. And you know what? She came around, she sat down, she brought her umbrella too. <laughs> she said she was nervous. She didn't know she was going to take it out. When she saw mine was already out, she was like, yeah, I'm ready. Oh, that's so funny. And her husband was like, it's their, it's their first child. So she he hasn't seen this side of her yet. This like super protective Asian mom side of her yet. So he said, I saw you bring the umbrella. I was like, oh, is it supposed to rain today? He had no idea. <laughs> So I, I had to go, I had to get over these, how do I respond to these stereotypes when I was younger? And one of my biggest regrets is that when I went off to college, I was a young woman and I did not have enough of a sense of health self that I, I should have studied Chinese and that would have been probably so great for my career. But there was this, you know, people, let's see, you're Asian. You're like, Oh, like ching, ching, chong, like you just all these things about you. And so I wasn't, a, uh, I wasn't just grown enough to, to, to take Chinese, you know, at that time. And I, I, I think it's really lot. hard for, it's hard for kids to be different. It's extremely difficult for teenagers to be different. Yeah. And the trauma of being ostracized, even if it's in small ways of being othered or just being treated like you're from some other planet when prior to getting to the point of leaving the house, you just thought you were a person, which you are just a person. But then when you go out, you know, you're this person who's different in unacceptable ways and people make fun. It's really hard to get a handle on that and just get comfortable with being yourself and get on with the business of living your life. So you mentioned that people would take your lunch money. So were you being bullied when you were in elementary school? Uh, well, this is middle school, and this middle. is so awkward because it was always black kids taking my lunch money. <laughs> oh, I want to say it wasn't like that in my town, but my town was not diverse at all. Like I can liter- I can still name all the Asian students that we had. Right, there just wasn't enough of them for anybody to know anything about them. <laughs> I, well, and then you knew them as an individual person. It's like, how right. are you going to make fun of Chris? Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Here, he, Vietnamese people, it's the second largest population of Vietnamese people after uh, California. In fact, I didn't know when I first moved to Georgia, I was a lot of people's first Asian friend that they'd ever had. So it wasn't until like I went to Georgia and people were giving me all these like wax stereotypes about Asians. And I was like, I don't know what, where these are coming from because How I'm protecting them. Come up? How do people just come up to you and start rattling off all the stereotypes they've heard about the group that they think you belong to? Well, because they see you and they're there because they're people are Southern. So people are trying to be hospitable by trying to, you know, act on the information that they think that they know and they don't know anything about Asian people. And so they're just trying to accommodate you. They're like, you go into their house and they're like, oh, let me, I think I have a Japanese tea or like, you know, they're just Uh like trying to, (laughs) trying to, you know, and it did feel very racist at first. and And, but eventually after I lived in Georgia long enough, I realized like, no, They've just never met Asian people before and they're trying, they're just trying and they're trying really well because they don't have a lot of information and, and they feel awkward because segregation is such a, you know, just this thing everybody's constantly thinking about, you know, and, and they were, they were actually trying really hard. And I, and I, and I realized that everyone was trying to welcome me and just didn't know how. Wow. Right. 
But like in a place like Texas, that same behavior would have absolutely been racist on purpose. Because they knew good and well. They They were familiar with the culture. Okay. Right? Like people, people, when people do that in a place like California or Washington or Texas, like. It's targeted. Yeah. That's like, yeah, you're just ignorant on purpose, you know, mm-hmm. but eventually I realized that, you know, Georgia did not get this international population until after the Olympics and the Olympics. Yeah. And so it just was, I, and so then I was just like, all right, let me tell you right. anything you want to know about the Asian American experience. I'm, I'm happy to share, you know. Well, it's so funny because Georgia still is so people sometimes they'll keep to themselves it's not like they don't want to interact with other groups of people but people will kind of huddle up based on shared language or shared food culture and you kind of have to like go to that side of town or you have to go to that neighborhood or you have to Korean food in Georgia was one of my culinary epiphanies Mm -hmm. like the so in Georgia what I learned about that I will that will never leave my body now is Southern food, Indian food, and Korean food. The Indian, Korean, and Southern food in Georgia is bananas. It's mind-blowing. Now, what about Southern food in Texas? Was there a big difference? We're not Southern. Texas food is different. You cannot buy green tomatoes here. Hmm. Vidalia onions are extremely rare to find here. Like, you can get... grits but like only kind of like the you know mass produced like instant packet kind of grits and it's not common people don't eat them commonly right so like what's more common you know uh, if you're what's more common would be like huevos rancheros and like salsa at your hotel or something the first grit i ever had was when i went for my interview at the university of georgia and it was a mass-produced cheap hotel you know, grits. And I was just like, what is this? This is amazing. Okay. So you thought that was good too. I love, I could, I never had a grit before. I talked about it all day long. I, I'm glad I didn't ruin my college interviews. I was like, I had, I had my first grit this morning and it was probably helped. I, I could. I loved it. I was like putting my mouth. I'm like talking to the hotel staff being like, what is this? <laughs> and they're just like, what? It's just like, yeah i asked somebody to meet me like somebody i'd know like a friend i'd met online i'm like hey i'm in your state you know come meet me and they're like where are you and i'm like uh i'm at the waffle house and they're like i have to be more specific than that i had no idea there was like a waffle house in every corner like there are 20 waffle houses between me and you right now (laughs) yeah that's true that's absolutely true I miss that. We don't have them in Austin. I mean, there's something about it. Yeah, when they're not around, when they're on every corner, you tend to take them for granted. But when you're not at home, well, home to me, it's just like, I just need some scrambled eggs with some hair in it since they don't ever have hair nets on. And I inevitably, I get hair in my food every single time I go. I know that doesn't happen to other people or they think it doesn't happen to them. I think that they're talking and eating and they eat the hair. Uh, that's just the part of the flavor. Yeah, that's just <laughs> part of the seasoning. <laughs> that's part of the experience. It is. It's part of the experience. It's a full greasy spoon type of thing. You have this really evolved relationship with cooking now about trying to assess what the person you're serving when you have your uh, dinner parties, what they need from the experience. So with all of that meaning wrapped up in food, especially for a lot of children, I would think, since they're recently coming from an environment where all the food maybe was tailored to them because 
you know, there's something about how a mother cooks for you. It does feel like it's imbued with love and it is tailored to you even when she's trying to get you to eat stuff you don't want to eat. How do you bring that warm relationship with food into a cafeteria experience? It sounds like you liked a lot of the food during your time in school, but that being in the cafeteria wasn't necessarily like a exceptionally warm experience or it definitely didn't level up to the experience of eating at home. What do you think we need to know working with kids and food that you think maybe a lot of us aren't aware of? I think you're perfectly aware of kind of the industrial forces at work that you guys have to work within the confines of. Um, and But it starts, these kind of industrial forces, I think, will start at a very young age. When, yeah, come on. My son's here. Does no. he want to be a guest on this show? Oh, perfect time. <laughs> Okay, so how old is, who's coming in now? Ryu's coming in now. Hey, Ryu. Hey, Ryu. Do you like food at the cafeteria? We can talk. What do you eat at school? Mm, carrot, rice. What so he, um, he is about to start kindergarten. Exciting. So he was in pre-K. And we have, we put them in uh, Asian daycare. Frankly, one of the big selling points was that it's not like organic gourmet food or anything, but real food goes into the building, like raw ingredients go into the building and then like real food comes out, <laughs> comes into the classroom, you know, yeah. for the little kids. So, uh, and every once in a while, like the parent, there'll be like a Halloween party or something. The parents come and we get to see the kind, the kind of food they want. It's not like fancy. It's not any food I would want to eat as an adult, you know, but it's real <laughs> But it's, it's scratch cooking. It's Maybe like real food. Simple yeah. Simple cooking that you started out with when you were getting comfortable in the kitchen. Not a t- ton of ingredients, but real recognizable right. whole food. Right. Like right. real carrots, like real, you know what I mean? Like they were, <laughs> they had to like clean and peel and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of the American, like the more traditional, regular American daycares, they, they were like, and we have, um, you know, pizza day and then spaghetti day. And you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was like yeah, the same yeah. men- week of these like very um condescending foods you know it, it, when I was growing up like we didn't we didn't go to restaurants uh we did we would go to Denny's or something like that we never order off the kids menu because when you go to a, a regular Asian restaurant you don't order off the kids menu there is no kids menu right you order yeah. the, you, the back then you would just order your big bowl of pho and then you would ask for a small bowl and then you pour out some of your pho for your child so we always just you know growing up you, you just <laughs> ate smaller portions of right, the right that your parents ate and um and and we don't we don't we so we have the opposite perspective of americans if i were to base what i know about the american perspective on um on the the menus that you have at the restaurants right is that uh you save the best food for the children and then you and the adults would eat the worst food but like at american restaurants it's like you save the worst food for the children And the adults get the best food, you know, whereas it's like we're prioritizing the next generation. Like if there's only one good morsel of something, then then you give the best food to the child. <laughs> right. I definitely agree that to me, it, there's no such thing as kid food. They're really it's this thing we've dreamt up over time. And I think part of that is um, certain companies marketed their products very well. And then we just started to think of these things as kid food. But in reality, why should there be any difference? Like there really isn't any reason for a child not to be eating the same thing as an adult. Once they get beyond the age of about two, if they're not having any problems chewing and swallowing, there isn't anything we can have that they can't have. Like for Unless it's Jack in the Box. I only eat Jack in the Box when my kids are at school. Okay? <laughs> 
that makes sense to me that you you just give them smaller portions. You can give them, you know, real food. There is no kid menu. So th- that's one of the things that I've been working on with a, an organization here um, in town that was formerly called the Center for Place-Based Initiatives, uh, but they just changed their name. And I can't remember what the new name is. I'm really sorry. And what they do is they, they, they source solutions to public health problems from just like regular people. And they just try to recruit as many ideas from people on the ground as possible. And one of the ideas that I, uh, that I told them about is that I noticed um, when we had our first child, um, you go to these well checks at the doctor and they give you these little newsletters with helpful tips uh, about like how to how to take care of babies. Uh, but also, you know, it, like hints about like what's normal and what's not normal at this age and, and, and nutritional guidelines. Sorry. And so they give you these nutritional guidelines uh, for kids, but they only list this extremely short, very culturally specific like the predominant culture. This is based on my experience at the grocery store, okay? You all's like seafood aisle is like this big. Well, <laughs> like, it's amazing like to five me. Vegetables. Well, you see in like in Atlanta, we have these big international markets. Was the Buford Highway Market um, redesigned before? Because before uh, it was smaller and then they like remodeled it. And it, there's stuff in there I've never seen before. There's stuff in there I don't know how to make. My grandma, she has dementia right now, but before she got sick, the few times that she came to visit up here, she would just go pick up anything that looked like a fruit or vegetable and talk to the people near that fruit or vegetable who looked like they were looking for a ripe one and say, how do you cook this? What do you do with this? And throw it in her cart and she would eat it. So I'm used to like, if somebody tells me it's edible, I believe them. And it's interesting, it's like my hometown is a very small town. And when we were kids, there was almost no Hispanic population to speak of. My grandma was like the only one because she's Afro-Cuban. But when finally some Mexican people started to go to town, I remember making a Mexican friend at church who was horrified to see that we were served salary when we went out. I think we went out for wings or something. They're like, what's happening? Like, is this like racist shenanigans? What's happening? Like, that's for animals. Like, that's pig food. That is not human food. I don't understand why they put it on our plate. And it was like the first time I thought, you know, what we think is That makes is so edible. much more sense to feed that to animals to me. Yeah, yeah, it's like what we think is people food. It's so dependent on where we were raised on the planet. And so much of that stuff is not a real rule. It's just like an idea we have. So if I see someone else says it's edible, I'm usually on board unless it's still moving. Well, and it, well, so the problem comes is when you have this monocultural set of child nutritional guidelines, and this comes up in the school system too, but it starts when my kid goes to their first checkup, right, at the doctor's office. When you're a first time parent, you're terrified. You're just terrified. Okay. And your level, your, especially at the beginning, your appetite for risk is zero. Okay. You take all these left turn, all these right turns in order to not cut through traffic and do like the left turn. You know what I mean? You're just super careful. And you know, one of the, the couples that we made friends with in our birthing class at the hospital, they were Hispanic um, from Mexico, moved up for, um, we are the big tech sector here. You know, they like moved up to get like, because of these, because of some tech companies that recruited them here or whatever. And I noticed when we, our kids got to play, cause our due dates were within weeks of each other, right. 
that they were giving their kid this like packaged food that like wasn't very tasty um you know but wasn't very tasty and it wasn't because of convenience they said it was because like these were the ones that were recommended at the doctor's office that had like the numbers they're like oh look for phase one phase two on the packaging and so basically it's like they told them they're like oh this is the baby food that you buy them and they were just too scared to not do exactly like you know this and they they had this is texas right if you if you are from mexico where you get to eat all of these like amazing you know, fruits and vegetables, you know, with like every meal, you know, then you come to Central Texas, those ingredients are available to you here. It's not like they moved to, I don't know, Idaho or something. I don't know. I'm sorry, Idaho. I don't know what your markets are like Idaho, but like, it's much further from the source of, of, of these fruits and vegetables. But in Central Texas, they're widely available. We have like competing competing Latin American grocery chains, you know, these, these ingredients are widely available for people here. But because those ingredients weren't specifically listed in the allowed fruits and vegetables for babies, they were just scared not they were scared to 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 give them something that they knew to be perfectly healthy but they just you know we already don't know anything about babies right. right except for what you read on the internet and what the doctor gives you right and so they didn't know how to cook these these things and so they just had to buy them in the baby food things and then the baby food things are clearly labeled and so they're like okay well we know that this is fine we know that this is acceptable so we're just going to buy it because of the level of certainty and that that's that's what we're looking for. We're willing to trade off everything for like the level of certainty, right? And so then that just they had these healthy habits, and now they're scared to give them yeah. to their child, and that's so that's a problem that that I brought to the Center for Play Space Initiatives. That's really upsetting because now that's something that has been pointed out to me in some of my trainings when I was working in public health that you need to be careful about how you write nutrition ed materials because they can do more harm than good. So if in an effort to simplify something, you create a a bridge list of what you mean to be examples that could hurt someone who didn't need this because they already would have known if you kind of describe fruits and vegetables in a vaguer, more broad way um, or more vague. Both of those are the way to say it. But you have to be careful not to make it seem like you're giving an all-inclusive list or like these are sure things when maybe those were just the things that came to mind. Maybe stay away from getting in between people and the information they already have access to. I I I love food from from I just eat it. Yeah, I just eat everything. <laughs> I love I love all kinds of food. Yeah. So what would your recommendation be for people who want their menus to be more inclusive? I, I think y- y'all should also uh, feed kids all, all kinds of different food. <laughs> right? So, so it's, it's from the top down, right? It's from the school system down because I, I, I took some Asian food to uh, school lunch to uh, my nephews back when they were in elementary school. And I... Uh, was worried. I asked him, I was like, do you want me to bring you American food, like burger thing, you know, would that look cool? Or like, do you just want me to bring you like some really good Vietnamese food from a Vietnamese restaurant? And they're like, oh, definitely some bomb Vietnamese food. And I was like, oh, okay, great. And I brought school and their school, uh, they were, you know, um, 
the, at, the, at that school, they, it was predominantly Hispanic school. Because we're like in, in Texas, right? In a big city in Texas. And their school is predominantly Hispanic. And so, first of all, like a, a lot of people share the immigrant experience. And I was like, oh, you know, when I was growing up, I would never bring fish sauce to school. I would never want my parents to bring fish sauce to school because I, I, I guess I would be people would make fun of me and they were like, oh no. They, they, they looked at me like I was like prehistoric. They were like, oh, God. <laughs> That makes me feel better. Like that's good, right? To know that right, so that the kids sounds are crazy fine. to them. Yeah. It's just, it's the, it's the people setting the school menus (laughs) that like, you know, abroad, that's a very important, almost holy time where you're giving children the sustenance, you know, to do all the things that they need to do. And, and I think to me, there's, it's it's a whole, it's a holier time of day in America where we have decided that we're going, it's so messed up. We've decided that we're going to put the burden of fixing poverty on the shoulders of children and that it's going to happen in the school systems because the adults are too busy squabbling to fix it. And we know that they'll do it because children are not dumb. They just don't have the vocabulary to express uh, what they're perceiving about the world necessarily, but they know when their family is struggling. They know when their climate around them is messed up and they will grind themselves to dust for the people they love, even if the people that they love like aren't treating them well. Like children will literally grind themselves to dust for their families. And here we are, you know, so the debate should be, how do we take this burden off of them? Or the debate is, you know what? The, it's messed up, but we're just gonna enders game up in here because we just adults still like we just cannot get it together. So how do we arm these children for this? impossible battle that made that they are the only ones that have a chance of achieving of, of coming out on top and how do we arm them right like what skills do they need what literal calories do they need do they need supply what supplies do they need like how do we prepare them to go do this gr- grave responsibility that should not be on the soldiers of children but how can we support this right and so that mealtime should be to me, to somebody who shows my love through food, like how do I support you? How do I, I, you know, I know your your grief or your anger or your trauma is like we can only support you. It is ultimately a road that you have to walk alone. So like, how do I support you so that you can focus on your walk? You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. To me, like when when you're serving a meal to these children, like that is it. Like you, you we're we're sending our children. Like my parents, I, I mean, it makes me you know emotional just thinking about it. Like how much hope they would send me every day to school like our entire family's dreams are on you like we 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 survived this for our children to have a better life and they would go to school and they just like hope that like every day this this impossible thing was going to happen you know and this feeling <laughs> which is it was I feel terrible how angry I was and he's like mom like I want a sandwich all the other kids are bringing sandwiches to school and you know like they're making fun of me for my food and she tried to make me a sandwich she didn't know what an American sandwich was so she sent me with a butter bun me <laughs> it's oh. like a french baguette with like <laughs> butter and sugar wrapped in foil in a, in a plastic bag all the other kids I don't even know where they got those like brown paper sacks that were perfect lunch size oh. you know <laughs> And so after that, I never asked my mom for another one because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, it just sucks. Like, this is before she could have Googled it. Yeah, it's like she couldn't Google what oh. Americans like you know and and she just she saw how hurt I was and just oh. wanted me to fit in and wanted me to have a good experience in America but she just didn't <laughs> but I grew up you know I was like you know what like I shouldn't put this on my parents like these kids are you know this yeah. is not mom you know and I'm just gonna build I'm just gonna get a spine and build a thick skin and and I'm gonna learn to be myself and and I think that's carried me through life but at the same time you know 
I think something is taken from these other children. Like, I think this part of my life was beautiful in, a, in its own special way. And I think it's now I'm like, it's so sad that all these other children don't get to experience fish sauce and umami. I think it's, yeah. I think it's taking something from them uh, that they don't get to enjoy. Uh, just like the refreshing, refreshing aguacates or in your or jicama or jicama salad, you know, like it's so crunchy and pleasurable, you know, I think something's taken from these children that they don't get to enjoy, uh, that they don't get to enjoy beautiful baguette or, or, uh, or German bread for breakfast. You know, like that, I think that we have a chance, like we're the exact same amount of money, you know, <laughs> like they, like we, I have to make, for example, at, at home, uh, cause my husband's German, I make this curry flavored ketchup and I think American children would love curry ketchup. Well, it's funny. We do a lot of taste testing in our district and I know across the country people are too. And it's hard, you know, you do the best that you can for kids and you want the best for them. But at the same time, they are kind of autonomous when they, when they come to us anyway. If a child tells me, you know, I don't want that. I might ask them once, like, oh, what do, do you want to try a little bit? But pretty much, I take them as seriously as if, like, a 50-year-old told me, I don't eat that, you know. So, but I will say, sometimes we'll just run a trial on the menu. Like, we've done more enchiladas. Because we're in, the kids I'm with are in Macon. So, you know, that's, like, another planet from Atlanta. So, at first, they were like, we don't know about this enchilada stuff. We're not on board. Um, and then the kids who were familiar, when they tried it, they're like, this is not how I expected this enchilada to taste. So that was not, another meet their expectations. Yeah. Right. I was like, oh, sorry. Um, anyway, but people come around. Almost everybody loves cilantro and people are going crazy for like the fresh toppings. Everybody likes pico de gallo, but they maybe don't want the enchilada yet. Where can we find you online? And tell us about your latest project. Uh, you, know, you can check out uh, my podcast, Fogo, Fear of Going Outside. It's a nature show by the most reluctant host ever. On uh, anywhere you find podcasts, check us out on Instagram or Facebook. It's at Fogo Podcast, and the website is fogopodcast.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on, Ivy. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really appreciate Ivy coming on the show. Feedback is definitely a gift. And her perspective on American food culture and cafeteria food was really different from a lot of things that I've heard to date. Remember, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others whenever you hear something interesting or useful. If you visit the website, schoolnutritiondietitian.com, you'll find easily shareable links. All right, you guys, until next time.